0: Deceptions podcast. Data collection is not merely about storing information from us, but shaping opinions for us collectively. I think that's the point of algorithms, isn't it? Imagine a DeLorean time machine car appears outside your house this year, and you get in and you're told that you're going to 2052 to see what the future looks like. You arrive and you see what it actually looks like 30 years from now. Do you want that future? What would you do to get there or to get away from that future? That's what we're going to find out. How about this? So I get a text message the other day from my telco provider, Optus, and it says this, cyber attack update, confirming only the license number on your driver's license was exposed, not the card number. Your state or territory government will provide advice on any action that you may need to take via their website. Phew, I thought that's why I'm getting 15 speeding fines from California. (laughs) Not really, my first thought was, wait, My driver's license has a card number as well as a license number. Who knew? It took a hack to discover that. You learn something new every day. Something new like this. One of our major telcos had hopelessly inadequate security measures when it came to protecting our data. Yes, that's right. Here in Australia, Optus has just been hacked. An amateurish hack, as these things go, but 10.5 million customers and ex-customers were hacked. 10.5 million. 40% of the population of Australia had licence numbers, bank account details, passport details, etc. taken. Now, given the secondary and tertiary levels of security for these things these days, it's not all doom and gloom. But the next time a public entity, or a government department for that matter, says, for extra levels of security please provide us with, we're all going to think twice, aren't we? I mean, how much data do they need? And is this hack just the tip of the iceberg? And should we care that an amateur hacker has our details, or should we care more that a large corporation or a government has a level of information about us that they didn't really need to take, but which we willingly gave? Even my passport reminder questions seem sullied. What's it to you what my mother's maiden name is? And why can't Fido rest in peace without me having to dredge up his name every time they ask me about the first pet I owned? (coughs) Jokes aside, we give out information flippantly in this modern world. Then we recoil in horror, wondering how we can gather it all in again, sheepishly checking our bank accounts daily to make sure some villain in a Guy Fawkes mask isn't stealing our life savings. We value our privacy, except of course when we don't. At the same time we worry about data being hacked, we publicly extol the virtues of everything we read, everything we think, every trip we go on, our spending habits, our worship habits, the state of our mental health, the state of our physical health, and where we will be in two days' time. We're private about our financial and legal data, but profligate with our personality data. What was that word Optus used in its hacked text message? Exposed. No one has to hack that much about us. We willingly expose so much about ourselves to everyone. A sign, apparently, of being authentic is self-exposure. Maybe our self-hacks, as we might call them, are exposing ourselves in a more sinister and potentially worrying manner than our financial data hacks. Maybe we haven't figured out to whom and for whom our self-exposure is most valuable. So where's it all going? Well, if you believe the reports, not in a very good direction. And we're not talking about the conspiracy theory websites either. Bloomberg, the financial news journal, in an article headlined China's surveillance state will be the West's future too, says it quite boldly. The arc of the digital revolution bends towards tyranny. That's the headline. Forget the golden glow of tech company ads and the promise to keep us connected. Bloomberg staff writer Adrian Wooldridge says our future is the Chinese present. China's zealous harvesting of data, the fact that China possesses 50% of the surveillance cameras on the planet, the fact that China's cable TV network now provides households with a remote control that includes a button that allows you to report a crime without leaving your chair, or the fact that China has pushed a financial credit system to its logical conclusion, a social credit system determining which citizens should be rewarded for good behaviour and which should be locked out, or indeed locked up, all on the basis of huge amounts of data. All scary stories and all safely locked away in a police state. But as we say, according to Wildridge, coming to a democracy near you. In fact, it's already here. Writing in the Australian newspaper in the wake of the Optus data breach, Peter van Onselen made the point that the major Australian political parties have far-reaching databases already. Big deal, you might say. But when appointments are made to government boards, the databases are searched to see if the information about individuals suggests which party they might have voted for at the last election. Government boards risk becoming stacked with groupthink. It's just a more sophisticated version of Amazon suggesting books you ought to read because you read one particular tome. Now, in case it all sounds scary, let's be clear, in our risk-averse world, it's actually all about safety, isn't it? As Wildridge states, the Chinese Communist Party now believes that data mining, he puts it like this, will discern what people want without having to give them either a vote or a voice, ceaselessly adjusting the party's offer to satisfy its, in quotes, customers. Unless we think once again that's just China. Then what do we do with New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern's statement to the UN recently about how to limit misinformation on the internet? A noble goal. But she states this, we're rightly concerned that even those most light touch approaches to disinformation could be misinterpreted as being hostile to the values of free speech we value so highly. Now I'm with you there Jacinta. But then she follows up with this concern about allowing the internet to rip, a free internet that is. She says it poses an equal threat to the norms we all value. Here's the problem in our Western culture. We don't all value the same norms. Some things you see as a threat to society, I might see as a promise and vice versa. The West is experiencing a huge splintering in terms of what we call the common good. So for example, my norms around how gender is determined or the parameters of sexuality are not everyone's norms, nor are they increasingly viewed as the common good. But rather, they are viewed by many large corporations and increasingly governments as problematic and contrary not simply to the norms we all value, but to the norms we should value if we're going to be a flourishing society. Data collection is not merely about storing information from us, but shaping opinions for us collectively. I think that's the point of algorithms, isn't it? Now, does this all sound too dystopian, too futuristic, too science fiction? Well, I love science fiction, and the best science fiction tells us where, unchecked, our ideas might lead to in the future. And they are almost invariably dystopian. And perhaps that's because the best sci-fi writers are not political or poetic, but prophetic. They take ideas and drive them to their logical extensions. Now, this podcast is called DeLorean Philosophy, not because the future, in my view, is all hoverboards and electric guitars, but because we want to take ideas to their logical extension. And in doing so, work out where these ideas are taking us. Which future? Whose future? And in terms of prophetic sci-fi, Exhibit A, the movie Minority Report, produced 20 years ago and starring Tom Cruise. And it was based on a short story by Philip K. Dick, which was written nearly 70 years ago and the premise a specialist crime unit actually called a pre-crime's unit underpinned by three psychics called precogs precognisant knowing before the event will these guys visualize impending homicides and guess what they've made the us a safer place violent crime is headed off before it happens the only problem a minority report by another precog who constantly goes against the accepted data resulting in their adverse findings being scrapped and the majority report winning the day. Injustices occur, people are wrongfully imprisoned, or are they? Best not to take chances when we want a safe culture. A few unsafe eggs need to be broken to make a safety omelette, right? And so enter Tom Cruise, the hero of the movie. Now watch it if you haven't, because this is not about starlags and gulags, not in the Western world at least. It's not about a political zombie apocalypse, more a beautiful apocalypse. So perhaps the arc of the digital revolution does bend towards tyranny, but in our case, it's a soft focus, pastel colored tyranny with a background of elevator music. The tyranny of a highly ordered, highly crafted society of comfort and ease, and above all else, safety. One in which those troublesome micro decisions, which we find so tiresome, are actually made for us. You see, in this increasingly curated life of surveillance capitalism, as it's called, companies using data harvesting technologies to compile behaviors and predict markets, no one actually needs to hack our data. All the information required, we gladly give them. Every click we make, every pick we take, they've been watching you. Can you hear the song in the background? And my need to be authentic, conspicuously so, in a social media world, hands out my data on a plate. So my resume might tell my prospective employer that I would be a model employee, hardworking and honest. But if I'm constantly posting pictures on social media of my weekend shenanigans, then hitting the ground running on Monday mornings at the office might not just be my thing. So you get the letter, thanks for your application, but. And just as we speak, the newly appointed CEO of a national football club in Australia is all over the headlines because as a Christian, he believes in some values around sexual ethics that the National League diametrically opposes. Did he blog about it? Tweet his views on sex? No. But his church's website is full of sermons that reveal what this community, the one he belongs to, thinks about such matters. So can the National Football Code, which is constantly seeking to promote diversity, and indeed has a pride round each year, afford a CEO in its club that doesn't value the norms we apparently all value. Maybe better to head it off at the pass in a minority report kind of way, pressure the church to self-censor. We've become accustomed to frantic digital cleansing in order to align ourselves with some supposed Polestar norms that we apparently all value. Now, while this soft tyranny is a danger in the West, There's an outlier country in Europe when it comes to data. One nation has swung so far the other way that getting any data seems nigh on impossible. Extreme data hygiene, apparently, threatens the normal functions of modern life. In which country? No surprises for guessing, Germany. The Germans take seriously that, quote, in Bloomsburg, the arc of the digital revolution bends towards tyranny. Why? because they've seen tyranny firsthand in their own country. They've seen how data was harvested for hard tyranny, and they've swung the other way. In a recent article in the Times, it was reported that in post-pandemic Germany, employers were having a hard time getting employees back to work, and they were not even permitted to check whether they were back at their desks. And government departments are struggling to align after being ordered to stop using Microsoft Office programs such as Word, Excel, and Teams, because some of the data might be unwittingly transferred to the United States. Well, that's a problem if 96% of all departments use office. So unless someone comes up with a new and universal program, things in Germany could grind to a halt. And during the pandemic, health officials devoid of data about which German citizens might be above 80 years of age and therefore in a higher risk category, had to resort to sourcing local postal service lists and guessing who might be old just from people's names. Which names? Well, perhaps the German equivalent of those 1920s names, Ethel, Mavis, and Bertie. So it would seem that neither extreme, whether that's too much data or too little data, is helpful or healthy. So what can we do about this? First up, don't panic. Well, not too much. If the Optus breach, or a similar one, has compromised your data, then you probably need to go and sort out some new documents and watch as the government tightens up regulations over the coming years. This is no call to go off-grid in some sort of post-technological existence. Because we live here. We live now. And perhaps sacrificing our current communities and friendships and spheres of influence for the sake of zealous data hygiene in the off-grid wilderness out there is a trade-off we shouldn't really consider. But secondly, don't go down the ironically digital conspiracy theory rabbit hole. Algorithms cut both ways. So don't be unthinking, but don't be overthinking either. Be discerning. Perhaps be most discerning about your soft data, how much we share of ourselves online. When corporations and governments have a keen interest in shaping the so-called norms we value, it may help to reject the let-it-all-hang-out authenticity program and just play your cards a little closer to your chest. Now, this is not a call for total self-censoring, but for wisdom. Be aware that the serpentine arms of data harvesting will actually reach further into our lives going into the future as technology increases. And what about some digital detoxing? As Australian author Daniel C. calls for in his book, Spacemaker, How to Unplug, Unwind and Think Clearly in a Digital Age, digital self-care ain't all that bad. Unless we're somehow bombed back into the Stone Age or an actual zombie apocalypse actually occurs, then the digital age isn't going away anytime soon. So we need to think about how we work wisely with data and digital issues. How can we help each other think clearly about it? How can we help our friends and family members, our children who are digital natives, be discerning about data and its use? How can you resist the push by surveillance capitalism to make your life smooth by nudging and nerdling you towards decisions that seem to be all about your comfort and ease? Interestingly, it's as I've been part of a local church community and the discipleship program it offers that I'm finding an alternative to those other discipleship programs, you know, the ones that big tech lures me with, ones that reward me with digital dopamine hits when I hit search. I guess we need a minority report community, a dissenting voice that rises above the fog of digital war and seeks to place us into a situation where we just accept norms because that's what the data tells us to do. We need a minority community that refutes and refuses those so-called things that everyone apparently values, that seem so committed to providing us with comfort and ease and simply personal autonomy. So perhaps the arc of the digital revolution does bend towards tyranny, but for us in the West, it will probably be a soft tyranny. The question we need to ask ourselves is this, what are we putting in place to stare down such a tyrant? exceptions.